0: Hi and welcome to the show on a day where I've gone nano-viral on Twitter and LinkedIn and my notifications are lighting up like Christmas trees. But never fear, I'm soldiering on and on this episode we'll be talking about the Internet of Things. But before we do that, do remember to pop over to onenightinproduct.com and have a look around. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, make sure you do that on your favourite podcast platform and make sure to share the podcast with your friends so they can check it out too. So yes, the Internet of Things. Now, I'm a bit too old for all that stuff, but I can appreciate a good startup story as much as anyone. So buckle up as we talk about working in product for one of the biggest names in IoT before starting a company to solve the types of problems that they weren't going to touch. If you want to find out whether my guest would have the audacity to try to fundraise like Adam WeWork, stay tuned to One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Jana Wellinder. Jana's a former lawyer turned law professor turned strategist and policymaker turned product manager turned company founder who says that a pivotal moment in her product career was releasing HTTPS on Wikipedia. Citation needed. Before embarking on a career journey, Jana says she started out as a fairy princess children's party entertainer. I can assure you there's not a wand in sight tonight, but she's focusing on sprinkling her fairy dust on the wonderful world of the internet of things and trying to save us all from stupid smart stuff. She's done that as the head of product at If This Then That. And now she's doing it herself with her own startup where she boldly claims to make everything usable by everyone. Hi, Yana. How are you tonight?
1: I'm doing really well. Thanks so much for having me.
0: No problem. All right. So first things first, you are the CEO and co-founder at Craftful, which, as we say, boldly claims to be able to make everything usable by everyone. But let's get specific. I'm part of everyone. So what problem does Craftful solve for me?
1: Yeah, so what we hopefully solve for you is to make sure that all of your devices become easier to use over time. All of your, I should say, connected devices. Generally, the problem we solve, though, is sort of you're the secondary effect of the problem we solve, which is we provide tools for hardware companies that develop connected products like smart home appliances, wearables, connected fitness devices. And so we make those products, we help them make those products more user friendly. To contextualize that a little bit more, right now, everything around us is becoming connected. But then connected hardware is really difficult to use. It's only accessible to early doctors. And so one reason that there are that kind of problems is that there's so few off-the-shelf tools for IoT companies. And then most significantly, they tend to be late to using analytics in their product development. So that's sort of the, the biggest problem that we solve today is that we've created a solution that makes it really easy for connected hardware companies to use analytics to improve their experiences so that more people like you can use those connected hardware.
0: (laughs) Well, not people like me. I'm very Luddite when it comes to connected devices. In fact, I've got two little echo dots on my desk here, and they've both got the microphones turned off. But it sounds like you're very focused then on not so much selling to me, but selling to people that sell to me. So you're building some kind of platform that I mean, you touched on analytics there, I guess that's part of it, but is it primarily analytics that you're using there to kind of use, I don't know, machine learning to improve experiences or are there other facets to what you're trying to enable with your platform?
1: There are other facets over time, but our first sort of flagship product is an analytics tool for IoT product managers that helps them improve usability of those products.
0: But when you say then analytics for the product people making those devices, like what sorts of things are you analyzing? Is it as simple as usage analytics and trying to give them the most insight out of that? Or are there other things that you can analyze that can help them make good decisions?
1: Yeah, it's a little bit of both. So it is definitely usage analytics where we show them where users get stuck, you know, where users struggle when they're trying to connect uh, that piece of hardware, which features that users most frequently use so that they can make those particularly discoverable. In the product. But then the other things that we do is we have usability recommendations that are very specific to the world of IoT based on the data. And so we we can tell you things like if your users get stuck connecting your device, here's the kind of things that we've seen in our platform does that automatically. Here's some things that are usually the problem so that you can improve the experience.
0: Excellent. And what are some of the main usability factors that you see with IoT devices then? Because in my simple head, and again, I'm pretty much a Luddite in these areas, but I pretty much just expect a better shout at them or clap my hands or something and they do it. But I'm assuming that there are some way more complicated devices out there than that. So what sort of things do you see with some of these devices that you're working with?
1: I think the biggest piece is that obviously IoT is unlocking a lot of new user experiences, but at the core, you're using a digital interface to communicate with a physical device. So in some sense you're replacing physical interfaces that used to control that device. And for most parts that replacement, the new digital interface tends to not be as easy to use as the original physical interface, which is sort of <laughs> the problem, right? Yeah. And there was a few news reports actually yesterday about a Swedish study that got picked up internationally showing that kind of the physical buttons in the car are much more user-friendly than the digital interface. And I would say that probably the biggest reason for that is not so much that it is physical versus digital. Of course, it is much easier to be able to find a button without never having to take your eyes off the road, right? does help. <laughs> but the fact that the interface itself is so difficult to use means that there's just such a huge gap. I think when you introduce a big physical display that you can put a digital display that you can put lots of things on companies tend to use that opportunity to essentially clutter that with every possible <laughs> feature that they could possibly put there right and that makes the experience much harder yeah i think that you know long term there's actually an opportunity to make devices more user-friendly than they used to be with the physical interfaces that's the future i'm really excited about but that's sort of that's getting ahead of myself <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, I went into my brother-in-law's Tesla yesterday and or the day before yesterday and was very, very impressed and slightly confused by the large tablet on the dashboard, which did basically everything. And then I got into my car afterwards and saw these big clunky buttons and felt all oh, better again. But, you know, again, pretty much a Luddite. But everyone is a pretty bold target market, right? Like you have said that you're trying to make everything usable by everyone. <laughs> but all the product marketing literature out there will say, find a niche, go small, prove it out, go big after that once you've proved that you've got something and you can scale it. So was that something that you did to start with, or do you feel that there's been a lot of value in going big from the start, going wide, and and going for that everyone?
1: So we're not actually going for the everyone, ultimately. (laughs) We're going for some very specific targets in the IoT space The making everything usable by everyone, that's our big mission. Right. In the end, if Craftful would have been successful, that's the world you will see. But we're actually fairly specific about, we actually started very narrowly with connected thermostat market and went off after that. And then we expanded to smart home and to other kinds of connected products. And now we're sort of looking at connected fitness and wearables. So we're being very specific about which market we're going after, even though our mission is very grand.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jeffrey Moore will be delighted. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting having that big vision and that thing that you can get proud about and something that obviously a lot of product people talk about that vision and and trying to get that narrative and that kind of better future that they can imagine. So I'm sure that's easier said than done in some products, but in yours, at least you've got that big vision, which is good. But you've worked in IoT, Internet of Things, for a bit. You worked in product for If This Then That, obviously a big, well-known IoT company from before. But you weren't big in IoT before that. In fact, you worked in a few places. I know you worked in strategy for Wikimedia. So I guess I've got a few questions about that. But firstly, what was it that got you yourself specifically into IoT in the first place? Like, did If This Then That just sort of come up at the right time and it looked like an interesting opportunity or have wearables and connected devices always been something that you're really curious and passionate about?
1: Yeah, my big passion, I would say, in thinking about kind of my career from different places, including across different, as you mentioned, careers, has been about fixing user experiences in various (laughs) ways. And so at Wikimedia, one thing that I focused on was to think through how to make readership particularly easy and how to avoid that big wall of text and (laughs) make this something that people can do on their mobile phones. And so similarly, every time I've looked at opportunities, it's always been identifying a big, essentially, usability problem. And then addressing that, you you mentioned, you know, I I, I spent some time in academia. Similarly, there, my research focused on how to replace terms of service and privacy policies with UX. (laughs) Right? So really, (laughs) this has been my theme uh, all along. And IoT was an interesting space in that it felt like the space where everything is becoming connected. Chipsets are becoming really cheap and lots of folks are thinking about how to put chips in everything. And yet these experiences are so often so broken. And so it was definitely a place where I tried to think about that problem from a particular angle, which is to make all of these devices interoperable and unlock experiences that users really wanted to have. And I think what I realized was that there's actually a problem I want to solve even closer to the user, which is to make it easier for them to use those devices in the first place before they even try to make them interoperable. And that's kind of what I'm solving now at Craftful.
0: Oh, there you go. So a big personal mission there. But that then leads on to my second question. And we've touched on it just then, sort of the different types of roles that you've been working on before, which is obviously great to have all of those different variety of experiences that you could draw on. And I presume that's very helpful when you move into foundership, which we'll talk about in a second. But I guess before we talk about the foundership, what was it that specifically got you into product management? Because, you know, for example, based on what you said, you could have just as easily gone into something like UX, which is related, but yeah. but kind of different.
1: Yeah, you know, kind of as I mentioned, I've always been driven by experiences that are broken and how, how they can be, <laughs> <laughs> be invented. I think the other piece is that I have a really big creator drive. I like making things. I like designing things, as you mentioned, UX, but also paint in my, in my spare time. So I just, I like that. And I think at some point I realized that the best profession of having a big impact in terms of actually improving user experience across a lot of things is product management and entrepreneurship. Yeah. One of those two. And I think UX does solve that problem, but in, for a particular product. And what I really wanted to do was to have that impact across a big area. <laughs> and so <laughs> once I had that realization, I did two things. I started various companies on the side, and then I started transitioning my career into product management. And the second was much easier than the first, so I got there much faster. (laughs) I transitioned into product in like a year. By comparison, I started my first company in 2010. (laughs) And it took me almost a decade to become like a full-time entrepreneur. So I think some of that has been kind of opportunistic, and some of that has been very mindful about what are the things that I like doing and what kind of impact I want to have in the world.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But let's then talk about my third question, which is luckily about going into that entrepreneurship then. So obviously, you've worked for other people, you said you had your side hustles. I'm assuming that some of those side hustles have now been parked because you've got your your new thing. But of course, you've then gone into product management, you've gone out of product management, and you've built your own company in a similar but maybe slightly different space to if this, then that, because, you know, I guess you're not doing all of the things exactly the same as they're doing. But I guess the question is, what was it specifically that made you decide to break out of working for companies and starting to build your own thing and actually doubling down to be a founder and an entrepreneur?
1: I think it's always been identifying a good problem to solve. I'm very much I think it's really important to validate the problems. And so with with every kind of side hustle, that's what I've been trying to do. I've been trying to break down the business into chunks. And so first validating, is there a problem? Then validating a solution that I have without starting to build that solution. What are some different ways I can validate that? So it's always been kind of this like MVP mindset, but applied to the business as a whole. Yeah. And so I guess it's really just taken me this long to get to a problem that Got validated in the way I wanted it to be validated before I felt uh, compelled to go and solve it.
0: So, is that something that you felt that you could have potentially solved within IFT? Is that how you call it within the company? Just IFT? IFT-t-t-t? Is that something that you think you could have solved within IFT, or do you feel that that was something that they just weren't going after and that you had to go and start a new company to do that?
1: Yeah, great question. Yes. And by the way, it is, it is all of those T's are silent. So it is indeed ift uh, is how we would pronounce it. But yes, I would say that ift is solving a really big problem, which is that there is a need for interoperability between all of these different devices. And there are some projects slash products out there that are trying to solve that for very specific things like smart home or connected fitness or specific aspects of it. And ift is much more general and is trying to make everything interoperable, which ultimately I think needs to happen. The problem that I wanted to solve was much more on how do we make all of these devices usable? And that that was so far off from the original IFT mission that I did not feel like it's something that I could do there. I needed to go and solve that myself.
2: Oh,
0: there you go. But it's fair to say that a lot of product managers or heads of product in your case can be really good executors. Like Even as they rise up the ranks and take over teams, they maybe suffer a little bit from that execution bias. Like they're all about building and doing that next thing, but they're maybe not seen as the senior partners at the big table. And that's a thing that's come up a few times on the podcast, like that representation of really senior strategic leadership from the product side of the camp. But obviously, you've got that strategy background yourself from some of the roles that you've had in the past, for example, with Wikimedia. So I guess that's kind of given you a bit of a leg up there. But have you personally found being a CEO A natural fit for you and for your talents, or did you have to really work at it to kind of get into that mindset?
1: I think it's a bit of both. So, first of all, you know, even though I have held strategic roles, and I think I'm pretty good at strategic thinking, you know, like studying data, coming up with product strategy. At the core, I'm a doer. (laughs) I've always been learning (laughs) by doing. So there's there's only so much time I can devote to strategizing before I feel the urge to put things (laughs) put things to action and try them out. I mean, I think there's definitely people who are much more comfortable just strategizing without executing, and I'm just not one of them. Yeah. As a CEO, I do think that there's, you know, as a CEO, you get to do all the things, and it's interesting, you know, having been head of product and touching so many areas as you do as a head of product, it's then interesting to then you get to experience how it is to be a CEO and and touch literally everything. There's, you know, there there is lots of subject area that I did not touch as a product manager, like fundraising, uh, operations, and things like that. And so I think what I'm realizing is that I enjoy the product tasks the most, but I do enjoy the novelty and the figuring out piece of being a CEO and having to figure out how to do all of that for the very first time. So I think it's a bit of a combination where I know know where my strengths are, but I also know (laughs) that I enjoy this general problem solving.
0: But it's presumably pretty hairy learning that stuff on the job, especially once you've got funding and you've got a runway and you've got start to get your first clients and you're really starting to try to make a company out of it and not just an idea. So was that then something where you felt it was important to get, for example, good people on the board that could help you out or good colleagues and people that you could bring into the company? Or have you been really just trying to work it all out yourself based on whatever you can do at the time to get over the challenges that you see in front of you at that particular time?
1: I think, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in doubling down on your strengths and then filling the gaps with other people around you. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think I've, I've, I've done a lot of work to try to figure out what are my unique strengths and then what are some things that I can delegate. So I have brought in folks to help me with operations, obviously with engineering, but also with sales. And I've been really focused on product and product strategy. I do think that uh, the other piece that I realized is that I'm pretty good at that generalist aspect of it. And so that's also something that I have brought in help. I have chief of staff that helps me with a lot of the generalism too. And I yep. I found a chief of staff that very much matches my personality and my work style, which was really critical. But I do think that you definitely need to surround yourself with great people. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, succeed for other people as well as for your own efforts, I guess, the product manager's mantra. But you talked a little bit about fundraising there. And of course, that's always a pain for people to have to go out there and start to attract people and get people interested in their idea and believe in their idea. Unless you're that WeWork guy who seems to just be able to just do anything and get money just thrown at him. So that's a pretty cool story. But you've got some pretty interesting people behind you from the looks of it. I think you went through Y Combinator. You've got Google on board, I think, and a load of other interesting looking investors. So it feels like you're probably pretty good at fundraising, but was it really hard, to pitch craftful, or do you think that people were really interested in you given how hot the space is and also with your IFT experience as well, that they felt that you were super credible from the start? Like how hard was it to get some of those people on board?
1: I would say that fundraising generally wasn't the easiest thing.
0: <laughs>
1: and I think except for that we work guy it Never Is. <laughs> but we actually, I think we're pretty disadvantaged by what space we were operating in because a lot of investors have had pretty bad hardware out- like outcomes investing in connected hardware in the past. And so that's been something that I've had to deal with. And I had to kind of start off the conversation by almost saying, hey, we're a software company <laughs> building things for hardware companies. We're not a hardware company. <laughs> But generally speaking, you know, all the things you hear about, like fundraising for female founders, yeah, that's definitely true. <laughs> it's definitely much harder fundraising as a, as a female founder. The questions you get are trying to diminish your business rather than try, like allowing you to paint the opportunity and really get room to the, do that. So you really need to kind of reframe the questions, try to find the people who you think are going to be good good supporters for you. And then for me and for Craftful. I was actually trying to find a group of diverse investors, yep. not because I thought they would be more likely to get behind us, but because I wanted to have people who would appreciate that diversity is important in this space, that yep. connected hardware is a space where it is very much built by white dudes as it is right now. And,
2: <laughs>
1: and if you look at the users who enjoy connected hardware the most, they tend to be white dudes too. And I'm sure those two things are not completely independent <laughs> of each other. So I think it's important to to bring in more diversity in this space to ultimately make sure that everything is usable by everyone to go back to our, to our mission.
0: No, absolutely. here, here. And I guess if you're feeling really feisty, you could give some of those white dudes electric shocks when they try to use it too much or something like that just to try and drive the numbers down. But just for the record, then, how confident would you feel walking in after a failure on the scale of WeWork and asking for money from investors for another real estate type company? Like, Would that be something that you would just walk in there and think, oh, yeah, I've got this yourself?
1: No, absolutely not. I mean, like, (laughs) you know, a female founder, a founder of color, like, no, we would never be able to feel like that and, and ask for money again. As it stands right now, you can barely do that with just successes behind you. And it's absolutely not the case. So it, it is quite interesting to watch that unfold and, and see the outrage, right, <laughs> from, <laughs> from the diverse founder community um, generally. So I don't think, yeah, it's it's absolutely not something I would be able to do, I don't think.
0: And the reverse outrage from the white dude bros that are out there saying, oh, this is just fine as well. Like it's something that they've not even had this inkling of a thought anywhere in their head that there's could be anything wrong with this or that it sends any kind of message. But, you know, I'm sure I'll lose all that money too and then come back for a third go as well. So I guess yeah. we'll just have to keep looking at TechCrunch or whatever.
1: I mean, I think just one more thought on this. I do think that, you know, startups are always hard to build. And so yep. there are lots of issues with how he was building his business, but he did build something. And so I think ultimately, while it is... A little obscene how easy it is for him to raise money a second time and how hard it would be for someone who had built even a successful business and didn't have that background to do that. But at the same time, maybe maybe that's kind of my entrepreneurial self coming in there and being like, But what he did was really hard. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so I have a little bit of respect for that, despite all of the things that he clearly did that, you know, I would never do
0: Yeah, well you keep finding a good fight. But <laughs> Thinking of your actual product, then, I mean, it sounds like you're doing a lot more on the software side and the data side at the moment rather than building anything specifically hardware related yourselves. So, does that mean that what you're working on at the moment is very similar to just general digital product management and that there are no real differences from the perspective of what you're building? It's just what's coming in that's different, or are there additional complexities that you see working in this space?
1: I think it is very similar to traditional product management for our product because it is just software. But I think that we have to empathize with the complexity of the customer we're building for, and connected hardware then has all of that uh, complexity. Where the reason they don't use analytics and the reason they haven't optimized the software is that there's all of these other things they have to do from hardware perspective, supply chain, you know, all of the all of the different pieces. Yeah. And so we have to empathize with that and not be too confident in, in the space we come from from the software space purely and be like you know this is easy you just do this <laughs> <Okay>.
0: <laughs> but that's really interesting though because i'd also assume and you've touched on it yourself a little bit that there are some very opinionated diehard types out there in the iot space the types of people that are getting nfc chips put into their arms and like have their entire houses wired up and there's a really passionate community out there Now, obviously, you've worked for a big IoT company. So you've got some credibility in there. And you talked a little bit about empathy as well. I guess the question that comes from that is, from building an empathy, and I guess, by extension, credibility perspective, are there any techniques that you've used to really try and double down on that and try and make sure that you're really there in the heads and the hearts of your target audience?
1: Yeah, I think you nailed it right there. IoT has lots of Loud, I would say, early adopters that <laughs> found out the voices of you know, the needs of the, the mainstream users. And mainstream users are just starting to use connected hardware. And so they tend to be much less technical. I think the key is trying to closely study usage data, which is why we do what we do. Yep. And try to decipher the needs of the mainstream rather than just listening to the early adopters in customer support channels or social media, wherever they tend to be loud. But in broad strokes, right, like early adopters will ask for more features. (laughs) Yeah, And the less technical users will need better usability, though they may not actually ask for it. And so you can't just ignore early adopters and their needs because they're ultimately going to be your champions. So you need to have empathy for both of those two personas. And that usually means investing in usability um, of those core features, making the primary screens sparse so that mainstream users can easily find and navigate those core features, but then also providing power user settings and then having those power user settings be in a place where they're not cluttering the home view, but then, you know, instead present them in logical places where power users will be able to find what they're looking for. And and power users are usually okay with looking for things (laughs) and having, you know, (laughs) having to navigate a few taps away. So I think that's, that's essentially it. Like you have to empathize with both, at least, Right now, and then once the mainstream audience becomes more established in the connected hardware space, then maybe actually early adopters will not be something you'll need to design for as much.
0: But there's a really interesting parallel here, actually, that just came to mind as you were talking, and it's around some of the cliches you get around, for example, B2B product management, selling into the enterprise, and maybe with a really non diverse portfolio of clients that are all one type of client or you've only got a handful that represent almost all of your revenue or something like that and they kind of bully you around a bit and they force you to build features that you probably don't want to build if you want to go big but you have to build it because they're the only people giving you money at the moment and all of that sort of i'd say good stuff but not really good but that stuff if you had to prioritize one or the other for sort of the next three months of your roadmap six months of your roadmap are you just trying to get a good mix in there or are you Really focusing on one or the other to get you that growth and get you to move to the next phase where you can then make the next good decisions.
1: I think you really have to do a mix. I think you have to do a mix of both. And luckily, for most parts, the technical early adopter versus, or in in that same camp as you articulated, the B two B technical buyer that isn't really thinking about the real needs of the of their users who will have to figure out how to use that product. There's usually some features to be built there and they usually have kind of a priority of those. And we can figure out what's their top thing that you can, you can give to them and make sure that they're happy for a bit. And then luckily on the other side, usually you don't have to build a ton of features. It's more about figuring out how do you make the features you have more easy to use. And it's almost more about minimalism and, and cutting down on features that are presented and figuring out the usability aspect. So it's There's almost two different types of exercises, but I think you kind of have to do both simultaneously while making sure that you're not doing the full list of features that the (laughs) loud early adopters or technical buyers are, are interested in so that you have space to do to focus on usability as well.
0: Well, absolutely. We don't need more unusable apps. But one thing that's come up a lot more recently, especially with some of the stories around air tags and people getting stalked and tracked and all that sort of stuff, is the problem of potentially misuse or ethical violations of IoT and the fact that some of this stuff can maybe go a little bit too far, be easily abused and cause bad outcomes. So is that something that you and your platform feel that you can help with or is that something that's really much more on the heads of the manufacturers and something that they need to look after?
1: Yeah, I think to some extent we can help with that, particularly around things like data collection and minimizing data collection, which is our our product is very much designed to protect privacy, user privacy as much as possible. So we don't collect unnecessary data, but we make it really easy for you to use some amount of data that's not personally identifiable to improve usability. So that's one opportunity for us to make sure that products are built more ethically. But I think, you know, just like with any products, it is really important to think through how IoT devices can be misused. And so you mentioned AirTags, I think that's a great example where they actually have done that pretty well. They thought through the risks and built and built in stalking protection, where they will like notify a user if their phone is tracked by an AirTag for, or if an AirTag is following their phone for too long. But then, of course, I think not everyone's going to have Apple's resources to think through the edge cases and have you know teams that can work on preventing all of those edge cases. So I think the kind of the really important thing is to you know try to respond quickly if others identify issues like digital rights groups are always working on identifying issues and so being open to that kind of feedback and then acting quickly on that, as well as, you know, trying to think ahead and, and think about ways in which your product's gonna be misused as well, of course.
0: Yeah, thinking about how it's gonna be misused is obviously something that people probably not that keen to do because everyone wants to live in positive land. But it's definitely something that's come up a few times talking to other people around these sort of areas is that idea that try and think of the worst case scenario or as one guy that I interviewed said, like, try and think about how your device could end up in a Black Mirror episode. And what would that Black Mirror episode do? And then that's the thing that you maybe want to go and think about, take a look at. Yeah. But you talked before this about curiosity in product building. So what's the latest trend, either in IoT in general, or just around the internet that's really piquing your interest at the moment or getting you excited?
1: I think there's just so much interesting... Innovation in this space and the connected fitness space and wearables and, and smart home space. This week, I've been meeting with some really amazing IOT companies here in Scandinavia. So just to give you a few examples. Next week, I'm meeting with this company. They're called AudioDo here, here in Sweden. They're backed by some really amazing music producers and they're developing this audio technology that enhances and adjusts headphones based on each individual user's hearing, which is really cool. And so you'd be able to kind of get a much more interesting music experience. Another cool company that, that I visited last week is a Danish company called AeroFit. They're developing a device for training the lungs so that folks can get fit and avoid kind of that terrible feeling you get when you're pushing your limits while exercising. <laughs> Generally, I guess we've seen a lot of interest for craftful analytics from companies developing specifically wearables and connected fitness products. So I think that generally, there's just so much opportunity in that that industry because exercise can work much better when it is personalized, when it's done remotely. So you don't need to waste time traveling to the gym and and try to find (laughs) an instructor that you like. And you can instead kind of just opportunistically exercise on your own schedule and when you have time. I've been myself an early Peloton user. And I've been using it kind of every morning for years. But I think there's now so many new companies developing, you know, Peloton for boxing, Peloton for rowing, Peloton for golf, Peloton for Pilates. So you can find the company and product that really focuses on the exercise that you really like. And I think ultimately is going to make us all much healthier overall once we see the full potential of, of that, that industry.
0: No, absolutely. Although I'm starting to get a bit embarrassed thinking about my own limits and feel like I should probably get to the gym at some point. But just to wrap up then, what's one piece of advice given your background and the variety of experiences that you've had and then going into product and then moving into founding a company and following your passion? What's one piece of advice you'd give a budding entrepreneur who's been building stuff for someone else for all of their career so far and they want to go out and build their own thing now? Like, How should they get started or what should they consider?
1: I think, I mean, I, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but I think, you know, once you've identified the problem that you are really curious about solving, I think the key thing is to then figure out what's that right validation process. So what's the fastest way to validate that there's there's a problem before you sink time into figuring out the <laughs> right solution, right? And, and be kind of more problem oriented and, and then validating the problem. What's that fastest way to validate solutions before before building them full on and, and, and spending time. That's kind of how we've built Craftful. We've been very focused on building MVPs or even less than MVPs and, and thinking about what are some off-the-shelf things we can strap together, validate that it works, and then start replacing services with, with our own technology. We've been very much focused on that. And I would say that that's key to building a business.
0: Well, the no-code revolution continues. Well, hopefully that'll be inspirational for some of the listeners out there and they can start thinking about what they could be building as well. But where can people find you after this if they want to find out more about Craftful, about the Internet of Things, or maybe see if you've got any of that fairy dust kicking around?
1: (laughs) I think the best best way is probably to reach out to me on Twitter. That's probably where I'm the most active. So that's Jana Tweets, where I think you and I connected as well. So... (laughs) You can probably attest to that being an active (laughs) channel of mine. But yeah, reach out to me on on Yana tweets.
0: (laughs) Well, I'll make sure to link that all into the show notes. And uh, yeah, hopefully you'll start getting some pings and bleeps as all your notifications light up and all the devices in your house go wild. Well, that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously really glad we could find a time and talk about some really interesting issues around IoT and entrepreneurship. Obviously, we'll stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time.
1: Thanks, Jason. This is great. really, really appreciate
0: the conversation. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to one night Check out some of my other fantastic guests. Sign up to The Baby Mist or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back
2: soon with another inspiring guest. But as for now, thanks and good night.